0: there may be 34 states now that do have some form of safe harbor law. And what that means is that if, let's say, a, a girl is in one of these situations, you know, a young lady's in a really bad situation, she's um, arrested as a 14-year-old or 15-year-old for prostitution, um, and if she's in a safe harbor law state, um, they, can, they can erase that charge. Um, if she's not... Um, then she's going to have that on her record. She'll have um, a prostitution charge in her record. It's going to make it difficult for her to get a job. It's going to make it difficult for her to even rent an apartment. It's a really problematic issue that we're sort of putting responsibility on uh, kids, basically, uh, for the situation that they're put in rather than giving the benefit of the doubt and giving them a chance to, to do something better.
1: Welcome to the Deconstructionist Podcast. I'm your host, John Williamson, and we are back with the second part of a two-part series on the subject of sex trafficking or human trafficking. This episode is a little different, as I alluded to last week. Um, this one is more focused on what is happening and occurring within the United States uh, at this point in time, um, and it's a different perspective. So the guest I have on this week, uh, I was very excited to, to speak with. Um, he reached out a while back uh, about a book he had coming out. Uh, the book is called the outcast daughter. What I learned about hope, hope, and faith from conversations with sex trafficking survivors. And, uh, he also has a documentary film out. Uh, you can find it on Amazon, um, and, and some other, uh, places, but it's called irreclaimable. And, uh, I sat down, I read the book, watched the documentary. It was very powerful. Uh, for one thing, it's, um, he talks to a lot of the survivors in person. So there's a lot of different perspectives um, and it, it just goes to show uh, just how many different ways in which uh, women and, and oftentimes, unfortunately, young girls are, um, are pulled into this, this industry. And there are a lot of different methods that are used by sex traffickers to, to bring these women into the industry and oftentimes, um, you know, against their will. And so it's, uh, it's scary it's it's oftentimes some of the stories that are um, that are told uh, in the book and in the documentary are hard to listen to, but I think necessary because it is a subject I think that a lot of people just aren't familiar with, and, and oftentimes myself included, and and Justin even mentions this as well. You know, just the idea that you know this is something that doesn't happen in the United States. You know, we're we're this first world power, and uh, we're, we're so civilized and all that, uh, all that sort of thing. And you know, this is something that happens in third world countries. You know, we see this in the news happening elsewhere, but that's not true at all. And, and in fact, uh, uh, we, I, I believe, if I remember the statistic correctly, and we, we call this out in the episode, something like nine point eight billion dollars of revenue comes from. Uh, the sex trafficking industry uh, in the United States of America and it impacts uh, an estimated one hundred thousand girls uh, that is horrifying um, so it is a problem it is very much a problem here at home as well as abroad and so the problem is is happening everywhere it's one of the fastest growing commerce uh, sources of commerce in the world uh, right now and and that's a real problem obviously so um, so hopefully between this last episode and this episode um you know we've presented some some ways and some organizations that are doing some excellent work uh that if you have the means uh you can uh, help get behind financially uh you know being at, at the, the times as they are right now if if the financial aspect is not a possibility completely understandable uh at the very least what we need to do is get the message out about this uh this issue and and help spread the word and and keep it in the public uh, consciousness so that way um, you know, we can find uh, solutions to this problem. And, and as we talked about in the last episode, as we talk about in this episode, it's kind of a multifold uh, solution. You know, there's, there's legislation that can be created um, and, and some that has been created but doesn't exist in all states across the United States. So there's the legislative approach to it there's the public education. There's the, uh, education of law enforcement, uh, when they come into contact with not only the women who are, uh, pulled into the sex, uh, trafficking industry, but also, you know, the pimps and the solicitors that are involved, uh, in this as well, that, that help prop up this industry and keep it running. Um, you know, there, there's, there's, Aftercare being a big one, a huge one. So, you know, one of the the things that really was eye-opening was where we talk about the fact that, like, think about the amount of psychological care that someone would need um, after experiencing sexual assault or rape. Um, It could be a lifetime, a lifetime of psychological treatment involved. And then, as uh, I believe Justin said to me, now think about that on a different scale. You know, think about a woman who has been raped repeatedly every single day for years, and just how much care that would involve. And it's just, it's heartbreaking. It's um, unbelievable. And so, you know, for those of you that live in the United States, we, you know, you guys probably know if you've listened to this podcast for a while, that I'm a huge proponent of mental health. And unfortunately, the mental health system uh, as it's set up currently in the United States is not great. Um, therapy is, is and can be very expensive. Um and out of reach for a lot of people. Um, you know, especially if you don't have insurance or if, if the insurance only covers a certain amount of sessions, it can be very difficult. And and so you can imagine somebody who is working in the in the the sex trade or the sex trafficking industry um who doesn't have insurance, uh, who barely has a place to live, you know, this becomes extremely difficult. And there aren't uh things set up and set in place to help provide that level of counseling, to help provide, um, job skills, training and things of that nature. So there are some organizations, there are some people who are doing that work out there trying to get those things in place. So, um, but it can't happen without support and it can't help happen without, uh, the, the voice of the people, uh, pushing that forward. So, uh, so I hope this, this series was beneficial and, and was hopefully eye uh, for, for folks who weren't familiar with it. Um, and, and hopefully it, it um, you know, for those of you who want to, to help, um, hopefully it's provided you with some, some opportunity and some resources to, to, to really help with this. So, uh, having said that, uh, again, this is, I, I think a, a really eye uh, conversation for me, this one, uh, really focuses on what's happening here at home. Uh, and so, um. You know Justin Toppins. If I haven't mentioned his name already, the book and the the documentary are outstanding. So go check those out. Um, there's a lot of um, really, um, uh, really gut wrenching um, and heartbreaking stories in there, but very, very important because they they really kind of shattered what I thought I knew about it. And so one of the statistics I want to give, and this is one that's in the book, is approximately one in five homeless young adults have been trafficked or felt that they had no choice but to trade sex for food, shelter, or money. 22% were approached by a pimp to sell sex during their very first night of homelessness. Of young people who reported engaging in any commercial sex, 54% experienced prior sexual abuse. The study also shows the disproportionate prevalence of trafficking among LGBTQ youth representing 39 percent of those exploited. Uh, those are horrific statistics, but these are the facts and so uh, so again hopefully um, hopefully this moves you in a way that that um, pushes you to want to, to, to help at, at the very least to spread the word. So, so again, Justin Toppins, uh, great conversation with him. He's doing amazing work and, uh, um, and bringing light to this topic. So go out and support his work. Uh, I, I will have of course the, the links in the show notes. Um, also, uh, you know, like I said, check out the documentary and the book. I think the two complement each other very nicely. Uh, there's some additional information in the book that isn't in the film and vice versa. So I think the two go hand in hand quite well, um, and also, again, uh, go out and support the music on this episode. Uh, David Zach, the lead singer of Remedy Drive, who was on last week's episode, um, that his band is featured again uh, on this episode. Um, and so go out and support Remedy Drive, Exodus Road, and all the different organizations that are helping uh, with this issue. So, um, and, of course, uh, if you want to keep up with what we are up to, uh, you can go to www.thedeconstructionist.com. Uh, we have a blog there. Uh, We have links to our social media. We have all of our uh, back catalog of episodes uh, there that you can listen to straight from the website. Uh, Additionally, you can link to our Patreon. So if you want to support us there, um, we have various packages. Um, Our most popular one happens to be our book club where we select a book of the month and we send that book to you. Um, And we have some other fun stuff on there too. Uh, We will be updating our web store shortly, but we do have... A bunch of different t-shirt designs, pint glasses, coffee mugs, all sorts of good stuff. Um so yeah, hopefully by this point, uh at the time this episode comes out, hopefully our web store will have been updated and we'll have some new blog stuff up there. Um and uh what else? Um yeah, just as a reminder, working with a new platform right now, so um very excited about some cross-promotional opportunities. So you may hear some some little uh commercials uh for similar podcast so if you like what we're doing go out and support the uh the podcast that we happen to be um uh promoting and then also uh you may see some ad hear some ad reads here uh shortly uh just for some products some uh some businesses that have uh decided to support us and sponsor us and uh businesses that we can get behind uh so uh, if you like if that product sounds appealing to you go out and check it out and uh, we will always have a discount code available to you so uh Without further ado, uh, let's get to this week's episode. Uh, again, hope you like hope you like it. And uh um, next week we'll be back with another episode. So without further ado, Justin freaking toppins. Hi, hi. Welcome to the deconstructionist podcast really excited uh tonight to have on the podcast justin toppins uh welcome and and thank you so much for spending some time with us oh, thank you for having me absolutely so um before we get into it because it's kind of uh kind of doing a little series here this month uh on this particular topic but um tell people a little bit about yourself uh, what you do for a living and and kind of your uh faith background
0: yeah absolutely um So I was raised uh, evangelical. Um, I worked as a youth intern uh, in uh, two churches, and uh, I attended uh, Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, for uh, about a year. I started, um, I think systematic theology is maybe what got me initially, um, and I started kind of having some doubts there. Um, I... Left seminary. I moved to California, um, where I met a um, girl who had become my wife years later. Uh, she worked in television production, and uh, I moved back to Nashville, and then uh, she came moved out here. And uh, for a while, I had been kind of uh, talking to her about possibly uh, working on a documentary or some type of production together. And she always kind of put it off. But, um, anyway, this, the documentary was how I was able to get
1: her, uh, involved. Very cool. And by the way, Nashville is one of my absolute favorite cities. Your, your coffee game there is very strong. So, um, I need to get back down it there. Is. Things settle down. <laughs> I'm telling you, every time yeah. I go there, I go to a different place and it's always good. <laughs> yeah. And they keep popping up. I mean, we it seems like there's a new one every week, but it's a good problem. I love I have. It. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so you, so you met your wife out in California, you guys come back. Um, she's involved as you said, in the TV industry and, um, and, and so you wanted to work on this project together. How did you come to, to find, uh, the topic of, of sex trafficking or human trafficking? How did you, uh, come about choosing that as the topic of this project? I'm
0: really really glad you asked that question because I think, um, the way that it started, um, was, even though I was not, I felt like if I wasn't sure that God existed, I probably didn't need to be in seminary. Um, but I was still, there was a church that I found, um, that was, you know, willing to, open to asking questions, um, I just, I loved the people that taught there and we would go to, uh, this bar in Knoxville, uh, they would have like a movie night where they would project movies onto this, uh, brick wall in the bar there. And we would all sort of just hang out and eat pizza, just people in the college group there. And there was right across the street from the bar, there was this kind of like a little bit more risque bar, I guess. Um, and I knew it was there. I'd never been, uh, growing up, um, in the area, but when I did move back to Nashville, I happened to come across an article about this girl who had been, um, sexually trafficked out of that bar. And when I was talking about potentially, um, you know, speaking to someone, I, I told my wife, I was like, I've got to, I've got to reach out to her. So I sent her an email and, um, she responded to it and we, we actually met for coffee right on the same street um, wow. that 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 bar was in. And it, it was crazy for me because, I, you know, I said in the book, it was like it hit me that, you know, she and I are the same age and we had been on that same street at the same time several nights. And, and just it kind of made it more real for me how close
1: um, this problem is for us. Yeah, that's one of the interesting things, I think, in this, and, and, and uh, I'll, I'll be honest, this was me as well, just my ignorance to the subject, uh, just in terms of how, like you said, how close it is. I just, just always assumed that it was something that uh, happened in a far-off country, some third world country somewhere. This isn't a problem that happens in, in America. Was, was that kind of your perception as well? Like What, what kind of um, misconceptions did you learn as you started to interview these people for the, the, both the book and the film?
0: Well, that's, that's, uh, those, I mean, those two points, absolutely. I had that misconception that it's, uh, definitely an international problem. You know, I, I, knew that it was an issue in Southeast Asia, um, just from other people that I had, had spoken with, but, um, what I didn't, uh, you know, two misconceptions that I had were the, um, the location of the problem being down the street and the other being how people got involved. Because I had always assumed that people just make bad decisions, uh, you know, put themselves in bad situations, and the way that you know we I would perceive a PEMS growing up uh, was just what I saw on TV, Uh, and that that's something that women kept saying to me when we were doing these interviews is that's completely inaccurate. A lot of uh, traffickers actually will talk to boys in high schools and have them talk to, um, young ladies that they know are struggling. You know, they have, um, access to the internet. And I mean, p- you know, people post a lot of things on Facebook, a lot of things on Instagram when they're having a hard time and they actually target those individuals. Um, and they make a lot of, um, a lot of promises, which you can, uh, there's a, uh, several books on, uh, on that topic of girls who were, you know struggling had a difficult home life maybe uh, mom and dad were at home and people would say hey let me let me take you out and and uh, shop for you um, and that was the kind of a reoccurring theme uh, with how women who are young women who were struggling uh, people would target those because they were more vulnerable um, it, it wasn't this this thing where um, you know uh, a young woman just decide that she wants to work as a prostitute. I think that's what we see sometimes in the media when people want to um, project the image that it's, it's, it's a victimless crime, but the majority of people are not in situations like that. Um, if, if you said you read the book, you remember um, there's a story uh, to one, McCarty talks about how as a runaway, um, you know, she, a pimp found her and she was, uh, basically he was giving her drugs to sell on the street corner. She didn't have to, uh, prostitute herself, but, you know, she says that she thought she was more important to him. Um, and she was like, I think 15, 16 at the time, maybe even been younger than that. But, um, you know, They had a whole, every woman in that house had a quota in terms of how much money they had to bring back. And she tells the story and, and, you know, tears up uh, when she told us that uh, he basically gave her a limited supply of drugs to distribute um, on a given night. And she knew that she was, that that was her cue, that she was going to have to find another way to make that quota to avoid being, um, you know, beaten in front of everybody. Um, so I think that it changed my perspective, not just on where this problem exists, but the system that is used to sort of enslave people because it's not, it's not changed. They're more psychological.
1: Yeah. I think that was an eye opener for me as well. This idea, I, I remember one of the women you interviewed talking about the fact that, um, it's, it's, not always girls who are like living off the streets. It's people who are being recruited, as you said, in high schools. And it's not always by a stranger that approaches you, but rather sometimes it's people that you know or even family members. And I thought, what? That's insane. Yeah. Uh, But some of the stories they told, that was exactly what happened. And and so like the theme uh, that I kept seeing was, is that these traffickers were were taking advantage of a situation where, as you said, sometimes, uh, you know, they had to, uh, a bad home life situation, or you know they were desperate and needed uh to make money to be able to pay rent or you know put food on the table yeah absolutely it it's it's hard to i mean i I can't imagine that
0: you know i mean I have kids in that, the the thought that some of these people i mean it, um one story that really got to me was a uh one of the young ladies we interviewed was uh raped by someone in her high school and um she pressed charges and her um her stepfather actually kicked her out of the house um uh, because of the race of the person who raped her i mean like the 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 situations like it's heartbreaking to think that there's nobody filling that gap um so that was one of the things that that put out to me at the end of this is we have to do more just as individuals, but you know as society to sort of figure out how we can um, how we can help people like that and just give them options uh, because you know the, the thing is that if I know that you said we would touch on this later, but I, I think in a case like that, what I didn't realize is. If let's say that uh, you know a girl is trafficked at fifteen or sixteen years old, if she has a prostitution charge, um, in a lot of states she's not even going to be able to rent an apartment, much less get a job. And so, what what is she supposed to do from there besides go right back into um, this horrible line of work that she doesn't uh, want to be a part of in the first place? But but her options are very limited um, because of. The way
1: that uh, the law treats her. Oh man, it, yeah. Go, go, for, go a little further with that because um, one of the things that I just wasn't aware of uh, was uh, this this thing called safe harbor laws and the fact that the laws are very different depending on what state you reside in, and that seems to be one of the issues in terms of really truly uh, doing anything substantial about this this issue.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that's a one of the biggest issues actually because when at the time we were um we were doing the research and there were things there were thirty there may be thirty-four states now that do have some form of safe harbor law. And what that means is that if let's say a, a girl is in one of these situations, you know, a young lady's in a really bad situation, she's um arrested as a 14 year old or 15 year old for prostitution um And if she's in a safe harbor law state, um, they can, they can erase that charge. Um, if she's not, um, then she's going to have that on her record. She'll have, um, a prostitution charge in her record. It's going to make it difficult for her to get a job. It's going to make it difficult for her to even rent an apartment. Um, it's a really problematic issue that we're sort of putting responsibility on, uh, kids basically, uh, for the situation that they're put in rather than giving the benefit of the doubt and giving them a chance to, to do something better. Um, and it Probably, I mean, I don't know at this point how, as more states adopt these types of laws, it, it seems like we should be addressing it um, at a more federal level because it, none of the people that I interviewed benefited from safe harbor laws. And it is something that we've just been giving attention to. Um, I think the DA here in Nashville told us it's only really been addressed in the last 10 to 12 years, but it it needs to definitely be something that everybody is aware of.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, Talk a little bit about, because uh, my thought while I was reading the book and, and watching the documentary and just the more I kind of educated myself on the subject was that it, you're you're absolutely right. It, it oftentimes seems like these women are well, girls in, in many cases because a lot of them are underage, are start, starting off at a, essentially a deficit. You know, a lot of them. I remember one of the the comments in the I think it was in the documentary by one of the women you interviewed was that a lot of these women who end up in the sex trade are women or girls who had been sexually assaulted in some form or fashion earlier in their lives and didn't have a, a support system in place uh and therefore were perhaps a little more vulnerable uh when someone you know like a sex trafficker came along and and are offering them things to fill that that need or that void that they had yes yeah absolutely i think i, I you know one thing i thought about
0: after all of this and it didn't um i mean it was probably a year after um you were done with the documentary somebody um, brought up this idea. There was a hashtag on Twitter, like the uh, church two hashtag. Have, have you heard of that? Familiar with that? A little bit, yeah. So one I had listened to, I have a friend here who um, does a, an LGBTQ podcast. And um, they, they kept, in this one interview, they were discussing how sort of like the, the purity culture that we have in, in churches, we sort of tell young girls that, if they're, you know, not virgins when they get married, they're, um, they're not valuable or at the very least they're less valuable, you know? Um, and I think that, that it, it I guess what was hard for me to see is that that's a problem across the board that it, it's not in, in faith communities. We still devalue those girls. Um, it's not just something that is occurring to, uh, to the girl who has an absentee father an absentee mother, Um, but I mean, absolutely the, the resources need to be better, but I, I think what hit me was that we need more, we need to sort of change our perspective as a culture on how, how we look at it. It's, it's very much, um, what I felt is like a commodification of women in general, if that, if that makes sense, um, that's the thing that stuck with me the most hearing those stories, particularly of those young girls because they just felt their value was was non-existent and and if there's a, a lady that I interviewed um, I would definitely encourage your listeners to check out her I name mean, with was Kelly alsobrook um, do you remember that part? yeah that talking with her because I, she she is very adamant that like kids really just need one person to sort of instill value in them and let them know they're loved. And she feels it would prevent a large number of, of kids being even susceptible to traffickers. I know that's a long winded answer, but
1: no, no, that I I remember that part. It stuck out to me because she was saying, you know, she was really emphasizing the fact that, you know, a lot of this stems from the fact that a lot of these women, uh, don't see value in themselves, uh, in the first place and so you know a lot of them are kind of I, I guess uh readily susceptible uh to someone coming along and and saying oh yeah you know like pretending to to care about them uh, until they're until they're trapped essentially and a lot of these women uh are in fact trapped exactly that like i remember in the documentary one of the women talking about the fact that and i think you asked her too um she said that she was taking taken all over the united states and and I think you asked like well how does that work and and so talk about that a little bit cuz that was completely eye opening for me
0: yeah that was that was eye opening for me too um cuz that was that was the uh Tawan interview and she's uh, somebody who i mean up until very recently has been known as one of the biggest advocates um for sex trafficking survivors in the world i mean she had a established um um, uh, a rescue in Birmingham that would take women and their children if they had children, because she found out that there weren't, uh, any place for those people to go. But her story, uh, was basically that she's, she's the same woman we had just talked about earlier who, um, was sort of forced to prostitute herself by her, um, by her pimp. And, uh, when we were talking and, and I asked her, I said, well, how does it work if you're traveling, you know, if you're having to be taken across the country, because this is back when, um,
1: you know, prior to Backpage really being taken down. Ex- and so before, before you, before you keep going, uh, explain what Backpage is. Cause, um, I, I'm sure like me, a lot of our listeners are like, what, what, what is that? It's a, it's a website first and first of all, explain, but explain what, what that, website was supposed to to do and, and kind of, and I think they just took it down. Right. If I remember correctly. Yes. Yeah. The government got involved to take it down, but it's, it's,
0: it's a, I mean, if it were not so horrible, it's a, it's a fascinating story because, um, uh, it was actually when I went to, so first of all, I'll back up and say, Backpage is a directory website or it was a directory website. Um, Basically, for different types of services, Um, it it most resembled Craigslist, to be honest. I think probably most of your listeners would be pretty familiar with Craigslist, but Backpage allowed, um, you know, massage services and like escort services to be posted um, on their site. And there was a lot of legal issues. I I, I know you said you read the book and actually pointed out at one point that um, Backpage had fought in court to prevent women who post or supposedly, because a lot of times it wasn't the women, it was their pens. They were po- putting pictures of them up on back page, but they actually fought in court to uh, keep the women's ages off of the site, which is unbelievable because I I was, you know, I understood the idea that a lot of um, prostitutes were saying that using a website like that made it slightly safer from them because they did have a paper trail, or at least an electronic paper trail of who they were communicating with. But, um, when I found that out, that was, um, I, I was pretty much done with Backpage page and, and the process of, um, making that documentary. And, you know, when I went to, went to the museum of modern slavery in Houston, Texas, as part of this documentary, which is really fascinating. That's, um, it's run by Elijah Rising, which is uh, another uh, advocacy group for sex trafficking survivors, um, and <clears throat> they actually pointed out in the tour that in the 2008 bailout backpage was a recipient of the government bailout, which was crazy. Yeah. Um. But yeah, I mean, but back to your your question about. Uh, to Juan, you know, she she told me basically. I said, "Where where do you go? Like how does it work if you're being, you know, sold multiple times a day and you're traveling all across the country?" And the way that she described it, which is, you know, basically going to um say she starts in Birmingham and then she would they would drive her up to Nashville and they would go to three or four hotels in Nashville. They would advertise her, they would sell her, and then they would drive to Memphis and they would advertise in Memphis and they would sell her in Memphis and then they would drive to Little Rock or wherever uh, was next and um, yeah I mean that, that day she told us that she had been um, sold I don't want to misquote her but I believe she had been sold in every state outside of Hawaii and Alaska
1: Oh my gosh that that's insane. And so one of the distinctions you make in the book though, and I think this is probably a good time to, um, to to kind of talk about that a little bit, but um, talk a little bit about the distinction between what is commonly uh, viewed as as someone who's uh, engaged in prostitution versus what would be considered sex trafficking. Yeah, that's, so that's something I, when I when I started the process and, and
0: I had talked to Angie and the way that that the documentary uh, actually happened is I I met Angie I spoke with her and she said Have you met Tawan McCarty and I said I have not and she said You should go talk to her and talk to Tawan. and she said Have you met uh, Kelly Alsobrook You should go talk to her and so they sort of it, it, there's this, a close knit community of those survivors and it occurred to me that you know also there were probably women who were not uh, necessarily trafficked, or at least aware uh, that they were trafficked, they were still working in prostitution, and I wanted to get at least someone's opinion um, from that side as well. Uh, so I, I did meet a girl named Amber in uh, Memphis. And I think me and, and maybe two, you know, like a camera guy and a sound guy, we we went out and spent two days with her and um, loved her. She was one of our favorite conversations. She's a um, just a really kind person. Um, and her story, you know, even though she was still, and I assume it's still working uh, in prostitution, you know, was that she started, she got a job in a massage parlor and found that she could make extra money um, with sexual services and then kind of went from there. And, you know, she doesn't work with a, a pimp or anything like that but her, you know, even, even in her situation, when I asked her, you know, what, why do you keep doing it? You know, it, it seems like everybody that we've talked to is they, they want out, you know, they would do anything to just have another job so they wouldn't have to do this. And, um, you know, and I think if you, you know, you, you saw the documentary and, um, included at the end that she, you know, she's paying for her, her daughter, her daughter's husband, her grandkids all live with her. Um, and, she, you know, gets up, takes, takes her grandkids to church on Sundays. It's just, it still seems to me, um, if she had another option, another way, she, she may potentially, um, not want to (laughs) work, um, as an escort. But I think, you know, certainly there, there are women that choose to stay in the industry for a variety of reasons, but it seems like, from the people that I spoke with, even just corresponded with it. It, um, it's mostly a money issue.
1: Yeah. That seemed to be a, um, a common tie that popped up a lot or where people or women who were in dire financial straits. I remember one of the women that you interviewed talked about the fact that her, I think she was the one that started out in a, in a strip club and her car broke down and she was like, you know, what am I supposed to do? You know, it, it, seems like these are women who have very few if any options at all and are you know commonly in in dire financial situations
0: yeah absolutely it it's so i mean it's so hard and that um, you know it, it, that that was angie and she was another one that i really um, just enjoyed talking with the the days that we spent with her and we talked you know since then um but you know, she now actually has a um, a ministry where she goes out and um, just delivers uh, baked, you know, fresh baked cookies to prostitutes and things like that. And she had one of my favorite quotes of the entire documentary, where you know she said there was a lady um, she would speak with who said, "There's a new girl; you should meet her." And she met this 18 year old girl who just started working as a street prostitute in Knoxville, and she would sit and talk with her and bring her dinner. And she said, I, I felt Jesus more, uh, in those conversations than I ever did in a church view. And, um, because she was so, I, I knew she was, that's how she really felt. That was one of the more poignant moments for me, I think in the
1: entire documentary. Wow. Um, talk a little bit about, this is, I think what, was one of the hardest stories to hear in the documentary, but I think it's a poignant moment that just points out just how many different ways sex traffickers are able to recruit uh, girls and women. And it was a story about uh, one of the women who, uh, one of her, I I would use air quotes, friends uh, took her to a a party and they, she got into, I think a drinking match with somebody. And next thing she knew, she woke up on the bathroom floor and this happened a couple of times. And you know, uh, before she ends up essentially trapped in, in a situation where, where, two guys are basically like, yep, you're in the, you're in this now. And there, and there's no, there's no going back. Yeah.
0: And that's, and, and, you know, if, where we were to, just to to uh, go back real quick to what we talked about earlier, um, about this issue of self-esteem and what we tell young girls that the girl you're talking about is the same girl, um, whose father had kicked her out of the house or stepfather had kicked her out of the house. Um, but yeah, she, she, you yeah. know, a recruiter for a trafficker sort of befriended her and, um, know, said so she would drive up to Chicago and, and, you know, buy clothes and shoes and just kind of whatever she wanted. And, um, she invited her to a party and, she was drinking with the guy at the party and he said, I can drink you into the table. And she said, I wanted to feel like an adult. And I told him he couldn't. And she uh, got drunk and sort of blacked out and woke up in a bathroom with, um, I believe she said a a dozen used condoms in the bathroom. Um, yeah, I mean, it's hard to even, uh, tell these stories, you know, much less imagine um, that these women actually went through things like that.
1: Yeah. And I think the other piece of this that was, I think, equally as difficult to hear is just, uh, and I think you kind of commented on it earlier, uh, because I think a lot of people are like, well, when these horrifying things happen, why don't these women just go to the police? but there seems to be a very good reason based on some of the stories I remember hearing and reading for them, not going to the police to so talk about that a little bit and how the system is just not set up to help these women.
0: Yeah. It's, you know, um, we, we didn't screen the documentary that many places, John, but we, I, I thought at one place I felt safe screening the documentary was in, um, in Knoxville, my hometown, cause it's not, You know, I knew a lot of people there. Um, We kind of set it up in advance. And there's one, one of the women in the story talks about how she works with police departments to make them aware of how to talk to prostitutes. Because if a police officer walks into a brothel or they do a bust, they don't have any idea whether that woman is a willing working prostitute or whether she is a sex trafficking victim. And um, she said that every time she goes to a police department, she physically shakes for the first couple minutes because she has memories of being, you know, raped by police officers who arrested her. Um, And then when we were at um, Elijah Rising in Houston, um, there was another really good conversation we had with this about them where she talked about how a lot of women are afraid. If, you know, you imagine that, um, someone knocks down the door of a brothel and the police come in and they're arresting everybody. For the most part, all of those women are being told by the traffickers that the police are the enemy, right? They're going to arrest you. They're going to put you in jail. It's going to be on your record. Um, and also you do what we say or else. You know, I mean, the traffickers have the power normally to, to make statements like that. and So what they're trying to do um, with Elijah rising as part of their advocacy is talking to the police department in, in Houston, Texas and saying, when you walk into a situation like this, just initially try to show these women some compassion and hear them out because they have no ability, even if we change the law and make the law more accessible to them, um, if a girl is too afraid to say that she was trafficked, uh, at the age of 16 and she's now 19 or whatever she is and she's being arrested, she's not going to be able to even access, uh, those laws. Um, so there's definitely an educational element for the police department. Um, and I think the only reason I, I brought up the, uh, the documentary is because when, when that part of the documentary, um, was playing and they we were discussing this issue with the police department. We actually had people walk out, which blew me away. Wow. (laughs) Because you you would think that, you know, people would be willing to say whatever it takes um, to help someone who's, I mean, we would never condone slavery, right? But um, yeah, there's there's something, there's still a little bit of a hardness um, about reaching out to uh, these women in particular. And I think, I mean, I understand it because, you know, growing up uh, where I grew up and I'm thankful for everything about my upbringing, but, um, you know, I would definitely see them as having done something wrong. And that was one of the things that changed for me the most was sitting down and having these one-on-one conversations and making friends, you know? And I think that's what they're trying to stress to, um, you know, police departments is just just treating these women as human beings first and then, you know, begin your, your assessment of the situation.
1: Yeah. One of of the other parts that I, I remember vividly is, is the part where a lot of the women were talking about the fact that so often the women are the ones getting arrested and it's the pimps and the Johns. And and for those who don't know, John's just a term for uh, a a man soliciting uh, a prostitute, Uh, but the, the pimps and, the, uh, the clients, if you will, um, are not the ones who are suffering the consequences. I think there was even a part where you're at the museum where they had, a um, a wall, a piece of a wall that had been spray painted, uh, that said something along the lines of you got my girls, but you didn't get me. Yeah. 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 That was,
0: I mean, you know, I don't know how graphic I could be or or not be, but Go um, (laughs) go for it you know that that there was a uh a cantina It's what they they call them um, in Houston that the, they actually busted up, and that's where they found that and uh, the police had that uh the traffickers had wrote that um, on uh, some wood they had used to board up the building and uh and with all the cantinas they busted up. This particular cantina, they found uh, discarded fetuses outside in trash cans. I mean, um, the way that those women were treated is just completely inhuman. Um, hmm. But but as, a, as an issue where, where it, you know, when you talk about the Johns being, um, you know, sort of <laughs> – certainly facing less consequences. I I do want to talk about that because there's, you know, there's a, there's a couple of different ways to address that. And, um, there's a woman here in Nashville who used to work for the DA's office and she started a program that's called the John school. And you can find, um, if you, if you just Google John school, you'd find, you know, several, and there's one in, um, Seattle, Washington. I think they're starting one in Atlanta and it's a great alternative because uh, what they basically do is take men who are uh, soliciting prostitution um, and they give them the option to have their first charge expunged if they go through a John school so they'll they'll pay money to go and hear um, prostitutes talk about how difficult their situation is um, what their everyday life is like the consequences of um, being a prostitute and having the charge of prostitution by your name. And the fees that the men pay to go to this um, workshop actually go to services that support uh, local prostitutes in the area. So I highly think that's a, a good uh, alternative for thing, people to look into um, and support. Um, hopefully that continues to grow. But yeah, there's, you know think um i wanted i know you said you uh, had read the book and do you remember the part um i didn't actually get to meet neil malamus he's a, a ucla professor but i had some correspondence with him about a study he did um in the, the journal of interpersonal violence and he talked about how men would men actually They did a study where they actually asked men to describe how they viewed prostitutes and they actually, several men said that it was sort of like going to Starbucks and getting a cup of coffee because um, oh. you wanted the coffee, go get the coffee, and when you're done, you just discard the refuse. You know, you discard what you don't want, and they viewed the prostitutes the same way, and the study was essentially to, to you know, see the correlation between that and, and violence toward prostitutes, which is something I also discuss a little bit in the book, but – um that really hit home for me because I, I think I know that um a lot of Johns feel that way. But the solution to that is not something that we're gonna be able to completely fix with changes in the
1: law. Yeah, that seems that seems like something on a deep psychological level that we've uh been able to mentally turn women into essentially commerce, just like another product to be used and, and thrown away. That, that seems like there's, there's some studies that need to take place and figure out, you know, and and a lot of that could and probably does stem from just the way that, that men are raised in society or have been traditionally Um, that that's, Oh, wow. Yeah. It's hard. You know, uh, can I, if you don't mind,
0: um, I want to use the example of, um, Lenora Frago. Do you remember that story at all? Yeah. Yeah. By all means, by all means. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, so she was, um, a woman who had, um, offered escort services on the internet. Now she, she said that she did not necessarily, um, offer sex, but that's obviously something that's insinuated. Um, for $150. So in 2009, on Christmas Eve, um, a man in Texas hired her for $150. And when she got there, she felt uh, uncomfortable, refused to have sex with with him. And when she was leaving, he actually shot at her and her driver and hit her in the neck. So she later died from those injuries and um, the case went to court and there's a law in Texas that allows for um, that allows for a person to violently defend their property. So his attorney argued that because she had stolen $150, um, essentially, and not offered the service, that he should be acquitted, and he was acquitted. And it's so when I heard that, I thought, that yeah, that to me that tells me the way at least. Um, the jury viewed her life, and I wondered if it was just me. Maybe because I'm so, because I'm so up, wrapped up in this documentary, I'm maybe I don't see this the way other people did. So we went out on the street and asked people, and the distinction between the way men and women viewed the story was amazing to me um, because. You know, for example, if you in the documentary you see two young girls um, who are Vanderbilt students, and we just asked them, "Hey, if if a if person, if a man, let's say, buys a prostitute and she refuses to have sex with him, if he forces her, so if he rapes her, is that do you would, would you still consider that rape?" And they obviously said, "Yes, I would still consider that rape." Um, and then we asked a, a man the same question five minutes later, and he said that it would not be rape because it was part of the transaction. And it just took me back to this whole idea that if a woman is working as a prostitute, she is no longer human. She's lost the entitlement that we would typically assume um, a human being would have because because of that situation she's in um, and we didn't want it we just felt like it's not we didn't leave them in the documentary to just point out that this guy you know is a bad guy or anything like that we just wanted people to understand the process of dehumanizing someone in in, um, in sex work let's say
2: you've got fire burning.
1: Yeah, it seems like education is a huge component of this for not only the, the, the common person out there in society and the way that they view prostitution and um just the lack of understanding that we have just in terms of how so many women get involved in in prostitution, but then also, as you mentioned earlier, the police department Uh, needing better education on how to approach and handle those situations. But then there's also this third component that kept popping up. And there were some horrific stories about this as well, uh, just in terms of um, just the dangers that these women face, many of whom are in these situations against their will, but from both the Johns and the pimps. And so you, you highlight some instances where, you know, these prostitutes are ending up murdered um, you know, and and then off, obviously even more are badly beaten. There's the one woman in the documentary who is kind of showing off scar a scar on her neck, and had said that you know she can't feel anything in her chin and like so. Talk about uh, that aspect of it too. Just the the sheer amount of danger these women are in um, on a daily basis. Yeah, I think that's
0: well, you know that ties into the police education as well because. Um, you know, more than one woman that I spoke with mentioned that when they would go to the police, after they were beaten by a John or a pimp or whoever, they were often told, this is just part of your job, right? I mean, you you know that this is something that's going to happen to you when you work as a prostitute. Um, there was definitely a lack of sensitivity, um, the, the other thing that I think is was really hard to hear because you know, if you, if you hear somebody say something, it, it might just be their opinion. But when you hear it time after time, after time, you think it's probably true. It's probably a consistent thing. And, um, almost every woman told us that the perspective of a John is that you cannot rape a prostitute. And, it's hard to hear that when you, when you talk to somebody and realize that they were still somebody's daughter, you know, still somebody's sister. Um, It's, it's really hard to hear that. And, And it doesn't really, um, there seems to be, I think everybody knows that prostitutes are more at risk for violence. I think the type of violence is, and people aren't aware of. Um, you know, the idea that they might be beaten by pimps is one thing, but, um, you know, if you remember in the documentary, there was a, a a moment where Kelly also talked about, um, one of her good friends who was also a prostitute. And she went to, to Washington DC with a guy that, um, she had a bad feeling about and he killed her. Um, there was another, um, Another another girl who told us about uh, finding one of her friends beheaded, you know, and and then even in situations where um, the the woman that I spoke with who is still working or at least was still working as an escort when we talked uh, talked about how twice in her time um, as a prostitute uh, someone had attempted to kill her, uh, and both times somebody pulled a knife from behind a couch when she walked into the room. Uh, which is just, I mean, it's, it's terrifying to think about cause they weren't even interested in, you know, they literally called her for the purpose of wanting to kill someone, you know, mm. um, it's, um, it's bad. And, and that thing, I feel like there's definitely things that we can do and there's solutions to a lot of this. And with the police department, there's a lot of ways that we can, um, we can help and, a lot of ways they can, they can do things better, but things like that, I don't know uh, what the, you know, sort of quick solution is um, to making those women safer.
1: Yeah. One, one of the, the, the ideas that you brought up um, in in the book, I believe it was, uh, was this argument that's been around for a while. um, And it's obviously controversial, which is just legalizing prostitution. And, you know, obviously with the idea that if it's legal, then it can be above board and therefore making the women who engage in it safer. Um, Talk a little bit about kind of the pros and cons to what that might do. Well, I think, um, you know, the
0: pros are that if, if we do legalize prostitution, we at least have some type of accountability system uh, for everybody who's out there working um oftentimes in, in countries where they have uh, you know given this a chance, I think what is it, the the Nordic model Is that the one that I've talked about in the book i believe um,
1: yeah i think, I, I, believe I think so. yeah,
0: they yeah they had they had found some success in making the situation safer uh, for prostitutes i think the the only thing to me when i and there, there's several issues, but I guess to me the biggest thing. Uh, about um, legalizing prostitution is I think, I don't see it as being the same as um, legalizing marijuana, for example. You know, where I think there over time, maybe people attach less of the stigma um, to, you know, the use of marijuana. That's certainly possible, like with alcohol, with, with smoking. But I think, because of of the of the type of work that prostitution is um, because of the way that we've seen consistently um, when when we allow like if we allowed prostitution to be legalized across the board then we've actually taken the step to make it a commodity I think right now there's certainly a a part of it that allows for men to uh, commodify women in our society in general. And we see it in a, in a lot of places. But I think when you take that step, we've actually done it. And it's, it's something that I don't think uh, is great for the psychological health for a lot of those women. I think it's, it sounds good. And in practice, it's, it's, it's worked out in terms of safety. Um, but I think there's a psychological aspect to it that is that those women won't benefit um, from yeah. having the practice legalized long term. If that makes sense,
1: yeah, yeah. Talk,
0: does, does that
1: make sense? I'm not yeah, saying. completely. Yeah, and, and actually, I'm glad you brought up the psychological aspect because um, uh, one of the things I want I want I want to hear you talk about a little bit is just the aftercare part of it. And and just how important that is, because I, I remember in the documentary, one of the women talking about the fact that, you know, it's it's been years since she got out of the, the sex trafficking trade and is still um, unpacking that and dealing with it uh, through therapy and that sort of thing. So talk about just talk about that aspect of it, like like the kind of care that we really don't have set up right now, but that these women are absolutely going to need. Yeah, sure. And, I mean,
0: on, on that subject, um, did, did you see the scene where I, I asked it? Do you, the woman, the, the attorney who works for the DA office, asked, she said, these women need a, a, a ton of aftercare that they don't receive. And I said, like, what? And she basically, she almost yelled at me because, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, she listed out, she said, well, let me ask you something. She's like, you think about, you know, can you imagine if there was an insurance that paid for the care of sex trafficking survivors, you know, I was like, no, I, I, obviously I would never think about it. You know, she said, there's the care that you would provide to someone who, um, has been traumatically raped, it would take years and and likely a lifetime to recover from that psychologically. So what she said to me is imagine now, a woman who's raped uh, 10 times a day for 20 years. And uh, what do you think it will take for her to get back on her feet? Because there's the psychological component of the need for counseling. Um, Potentially she needs uh, drug therapy. And then what about where she's living? You know, does she have um, any housing options? Where is she going to work? Who is going to feel comfortable um hiring her if all they know about her is that she was a prostitute before um, i mean these are all big issues you know and tuan mentioned to me something I, I i said this earlier when i was talking to you but i it never occurred to me that there are women working as prostitutes who also are providing for children you know, have kids at home and if they are potentially involved with a violent pimp or something like that and they want to Get out of that lifestyle. Where do they go? Because there aren't shelters really that offer. Um, I mean, there may be shelters that will take her and her children, but shelters that will provide all of those services in terms of uh, long term care, they don't really exist. I mean, it's certainly something that you um, could do a better job of providing for, but yeah i mean it's it's a it's a very intense process and what what I think I found is that because there's not a lot of services, many of these women just sort of have to work through it over the next decade and then they're still dealing with it um, but you know programs like the John School I think are a good option to provide some of the financing for that, which is another argument you could say for not completely um decriminalizing or legalizing prostitution because if you legalize, then obviously it's legal. You're not going to have the ability to take Johns and force them to pay for services. Um, It is a complicated issue to recover from uh, being a sex trafficking survivor.
1: Gosh, that it goes back to um, I've always been a huge proponent of of mental health uh, and mental health services and just the fact that, especially in the United States, it's so uh, it's it's not great. Um, not to say that the counselors aren't great, but the the ability to get the care that you need um, oftentimes is so expensive that even a person with a, a decent job uh, has troubles uh, being able to go as often as they probably need to. And then we're talking about women who are who are barely making ends meet, uh, who have you know copious amounts of trauma that they need to. Um, they, they need to, to go to the, the this therapist for. And, you know, it's just, again, a, yet another example of an area where the system is not set up uh, to help. Yeah, you're, you're exactly right. And, and the other thing is that they, it,
0: this idea that, you know, they're bringing nothing to the table because most of the time, you know, if a pimp is in charge of finances – it's not like they have a savings that they can pull from to even start that counseling process.
1: Right. Yeah. Uh, one of the, one of the things I, I want to make sure that we mention. um, you have this statistic at the end of the book that I think is, is definitely worth hearing and definitely worth mentioning. Um, just cause I, I think it, it opens a lot of eyes in terms of how big of an issue this really is and how it needs more attention. It needs more resources. It needs more, Uh, creative ideas and ways to solve this issue. Um, And so that is, you talk about at the end of the book, the global sex trade is the fastest growing form of commerce worth $32 billion annually. And it's estimated that the United States alone generates 9.8 billion of that and involves at least a hundred thousand children. That's staggering. Yeah. Yeah. that, That, the part, the
0: part at the end is to me the most staggering. I think, you know, like you said at the beginning, and, and I had the perception coming in that there are definitely, you know, Americans who travel to Thailand and, you know, purchase prostitutes and, and things like that. But the amount of children in our country who are susceptible, and we just very recently in the last few months, you know, there was a big um, push on social media where people were talking about it for the first time the number of missing children in the United States. Um, and I think it's it's hard for us to really pin down where a lot of them end up, but the statistics do back up. Um, what was it? I think uh, of I think I think eight hundred thousand of the missing children in the U.S. will end, end up in some form of prostitution. And a big portion of that too, that I mentioned in the book, uh, not a big portion, but the most susceptible group are like LGBTQ plus kids. Um, because, you know, like, like we talked about, you know, if kids don't feel welcome at home or they're kicked out of their house, um, what options do they have? And then somebody comes along and is like, Hey, you can make money here, maybe sells them, um, you know, whatever their dreams are, um, that they'll be able to travel, that they'll be able to make money, you know, buy the things they want. Uh, and then they're in these horrible situations.
1: Well, uh, I don't want to bum people out completely. This is obviously a very heavy topic, but, um, very important. So I want to leave them on, um, more of a positive note, which is what can we, because uh, I, I know people out there who are listening, um, their hearts are breaking by listening to this these stories and um, so what what can we do? What can the people at home do to help fight against uh, human trafficking? Oh man john i um, I feel kind of bad now
0: because I realize that a lot of your listeners do get a lot of encouragement from um, from your podcast, but uh, I think th- I think there's a lot of things we can do. Uh, for for me personally, I think everybody who hears these stories has to do a little self evaluation, um, and ask themselves, you know, whether or not they personally commodify women, um, because it's something that I realized uh, was much more deeply ingrained in myself than um, than than I. Had ever thought. Um, I think, you know, one thing that um, people could really do is educate yourself, educate others on how much of an issue it is, uh, that it really is. Um, be open to supporting um, people who are, who are really doing the work in whatever way you can. You know, if it's financial and you can uh, donate some money to um, one of these organizations, that's great. Um, If you can write your um, senator, your congressman, let them know, you know, what you'd like to see changed, particularly if, if they live somewhere where there's not some form of a safe harbor law. I mean, that would be fantastic just to give those women a chance to have their records uh, cleared.
1: Yeah, that's that's such a, a crucial part of this, I think, is just really um, attacking it from all sides. I think, number one, obviously, keeping this in the, in the public forum, making sure that this is an issue that doesn't just fade away um, and that is still uh, that stays and remains in the public, public consciousness. And then I think obviously also there's a huge educational component to this um, as uh, on top of you know obviously changing laws or creating laws that, uh, that help eliminate um, the situation. But um, I, I can't thank you enough for coming on. I definitely want to uh, give a plug here for, for your both your book and your film. Uh, the book is called The Outcast Daughter, What I Learned About Hope and Faith from Conversations with Sex-Trafficking Survivors. Uh, and then the, the film, the documentary is called Irreclaimable. So where can people get a copy of the book and where can people go to see the film? Okay, so the book, you can find pretty much anywhere
0: um, that, you, that you buy books. You can get it on Amazon, iTunes. Um, it's on the publisher's website at uh, Covenant Books. Uh, and then... The documentary. I think the best place to watch the documentary right now is uh, Amazon Prime. Um, we had recently been on Direct TV, but I think uh, Amazon Prime is probably be the best place to find it right now. Perfect.
1: Well, I, I enjoyed it. I, I thought it was a, a fascinating documentary. Um, like I said, at times very, very hard to, to watch. Um, you know, and, and some of the stories are just gut wrenching. But um, I, I think it's necessary and it's something that people need to educate themselves on in order for us to, to take action and and do something um, about it. So um, thank you for the work that you do and and thank you for taking some time uh, to come on the show tonight. Yeah. Thank you, John. I, I think it's, I, I'm with you. I
0: think it's great for people to be able to see it and just see that, you know, it is bad, but one of the ways that God, often moves uh, through people and we can make those situations better if we're just willing to um, just open to it
1: absolutely well thanks again and uh, and you know have, have a great night and uh, thank you thank you again for coming on the show keep your mind, you... yeah thank you John I appreciate that
2: chemicals out of my oxygen keep your out of my bloodstream keep warm my be the first and the strongest and Said, let's feel the arm and cheer him on man said let's cross the soil of the children Strongman why you celebrate the talk Took so my soul through a pipeline So more like a flood going toxic from a start It's oil and not blood flowing through your dark heart That's the justice here uh, They're just profiteers Special interests got their ears we need our opiates and our titanium We place the masses for cocaine and uranium Doing an industry on in the backs of the exiles Me and slaves. Text textiles Just like a home in the good old days Is This a blood diamond I can't sell the old Running in the roses, in my cell phone How did we accumulate such wealth? Well, the war criminals myself